You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. No matter how successful and rich and, you know, famous I became, I didn't make me any happier. So I had to find inside what was really important. Comedian Louis Anderson, today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Today, March 24th, 2023, would have been comedian Louis Anderson's 70th birthday. I first met Louis in 1989 when he published a book of letters that he'd written to his alcoholic father, a book that became a major bestseller called Dear Dad. And we talked about that book again in 1991 when the paperback came out. Then in 1993, we talked again about his book, Goodbye Jumbo, Hello Cruel World. Louis struggled with his weight and his self-image for decades. Of course, he also turned it into a very successful and lucrative comedy career that made him immensely popular. But it was only in writing those two books that Louis finally began to figure out exactly who he was and what he really wanted. So, I've decided today on Now I've Heard Everything to bring you excerpts of both interviews, starting with my 1991 conversation with him about his book, Dear Dad. So, here now, from 1991, Louis Anderson. Actually, it wasn't written to be a book. I wrote uh, in some journals these letters to my father as journals I was keeping on the road, as I uh, continue to do in my travels. And... What happened was that People Magazine did an article about adult children of alcoholics who were successful. And from that, I got such a response that I said, you know, I think that there's a book here, and I think people would be interested. And then we took a look at the letters and and started working on it as a book. There's something therapeutic about putting into words, actually putting down on paper what you're feeling, isn't there? Yeah, I I think whenever you express something outwardly, especially something that's been in you a long time. I think you just, it's a cathartic thing. I think you move forward. I think, you know, it helps a a great deal. It makes a big difference. Did you ever think that it would be, as it says right here in the red letters at the top of the book, a national bestseller? Um, I guess I try to stay away from stuff like that, you know, getting my ego getting involved in those kinds of things. Well, it's not really an ego kind of book, is it? No, it's not a book that that glorifies me or my family. It's a book that just tells the truth and tells a story and um, shares a part of me that, you know, I was willing to share. Are there cynics out there who say, oh, yeah, he's just another rich Hollywood type who's trying to make a few more bucks by telling us what a terrible childhood he must have had? Well, people who don't read the book, yeah, they may have that opinion. But I, anybody who's ever read the book has never uh, really, I don't think, criticized me or the book. You know, I think that they, it's just simply an honest uh, group of letters to my father. It's just an experience, a journey that I took. And there really isn't anything else about it, you know. Somebody stopped me out here in the newsroom this morning. They just stopped and they looked at the book. They said, that's a strong book. Yeah. Well, I think whenever you deal with the truth, you know, there's a lot of uh, strength there. And I think that, you know, we're all in the same boat. And I think it's important to remember that. And that's what this book says. You might appear to be one way, but inside you might appear to be another. But you seem so healthy and well-adjusted now. (laughs) Well, from hard work, you know, working on myself, not allowing myself to take two steps back, you know. It ju- I just don't allow myself to do that. I just keep pushing myself forward. Does, 
Does does the pain still come back though when you remember some of the, some of the, the very vivid episodes that you describe in the book? Does it does it still hurt to talk about them? No, not too much. I miss my dad, and I wish he uh, were around so I could have a relationship with him. And I love him, so I did get some great things out of that. You know, going from being really angry and unhappy and mad at him to forgiving him, accepting who he was, missing him, and then loving him. I think those are good steps to take. Is, is it a cliche, the, the, the clown who has to laugh because he's crying inside? Well, I think that, you know, behind all humor there's tragedy, and behind all tragedy there's humor. So it's kind of a coin that you flip. And as long as you don't stand the tragedy part too long or make too big of a deal out of it, I think occasionally it's good to glimpse at it and to look at it and to go, yeah, that is where that comes from. Because, you know, it's too painful to dwell on it, and that's why we have humor. But I suppose some people must also question why you do or have done in the past routines in on stage about people who are drunk, about people who come home drunk, about people who stumble through the bar drunk. I mean, they're very funny routines, but now that we know what we know, mm-hmm. it almost seems sort of, sort of uh, there's a pathos there that wasn't there before. Well, <clears throat> yeah, there's a... Well, it was always there, but now that you know where I came from, you know there's more of it. So uh, some people have a harder time with it, but I think it's according to how I present it and how they see me feeling about it. Sometimes I have to say that to them, but uh, you can't, you know, you have to, you can't continue, you can't just quit doing things. You have to, you know, kind of wean yourself from them. Has this given you a whole new dimension among the public? I mean, people who, who liked you as a comedian, who, who watched your shows, who went to your concerts, now they say, hey, this, this guy's got a whole other side to him, too. Yeah, but I think it's important when you're an entertainer to have two, you know, to bring this public image and the private image closer together so that people know, understand that, you know, public people are also very, you know, complex individuals a lot of times and that they got that way for a reason so that people can understand themselves better. But, of course, a lot of very public people don't like to reveal anything about their private lives. The only reason they don't, though, is because they feel that it will hurt them publicly. But really, I think the truth is is that if you do it honestly, it will not hurt you. If you try to sensationalize it, then, you know, it becomes cheap and... um, you know, fakey. But we all like to please our parents. We like to what, whatever endeavor we get into. We we like to think, gee, what what would Dad think of this? What would Mom think of that? You know, wouldn't they be proud of me if they could see me now? That type of thing. When you get up on the stage, do you do you wish your dad was sitting out there listening to you? Well, on a spiritual level, I just feel like he is. So I, you know, that has helped me a great deal. Uh, but yeah, I guess I do in some ways. Although you never want your parents around watching you do things like that because it makes you nervous, you know. But um, yeah, it was it's okay. I, when my mom would watch me perform, I'd have to kind of realize what I was doing, you know, and, and wonder what she saw, you know, and how she felt about it. But I think it's important to share yourself. That's what my comedy is all about: is being honest. You know, novelists tell me that they don't write for an audience. They write the kind of story that they would like to read if they were reading a book. Is a comedian the same way? Do you have to make yourself laugh? And if it makes other people laugh, so much the better? Yeah, it has to be a personal thing. It has to be for me. It has to be fun for me. If it's not fun for me, it's not going to be any fun for you. Was it, was it getting less fun to be a comedian until you, until you started actually putting these feelings into words? Yeah, and still I worked through those difficulties. It was more difficult. Things, you know. things were just coming to the surface that 
that, that you didn't realize? Yeah, that and the whole idea that no matter how successful and rich and, and um, you know, famous I became, uh, it didn't make me any happier. So I had to find inside what was really important. What, uh, which of the stories do, do people f- seem to be mo- most fascinated with? Which ones, which ones do you get asked? where the car goes into the snow. That's the one you get asked That's about? That's the one people ask a lot about. And then maybe the, the eating part, you know, how that's connected. Those are the two stories. How, how do, that's, why do some people turn to food and not alcohol or, or gambling and not food? Or what, what causes people to turn to different, different outlets for, for what they're feeling? Well, I think people who use food are just more conformist and don't want to break the law. Or, and, you know, if you grow up with an alcoholic, you don't want to choose alcohol. At least I didn't. I don't know what the answer to that is. But you turned it into a great comedy routine. Yeah. Well, I've always tried to take all the things about me that were difficult and weak and insecure and uh, human and, you know, put them out there and take advantage of them rather than to run and hide from them. Because you can't run and hide from them anyways. You might as well make the most of them. As a uh, person of Scandinavian descent myself, yeah, is it, is it difficult to, to put that, that docile, that... that inwardness behind you and get up on a stage in front of hundreds, in some cases thousands, in the case of cable TV, millions of people, and do something that your maybe your innermost nature says, oh, I'm too shy, I couldn't do that. Yeah. Um, I think that I am very uh, gentle and kind of inward on stage. You know, I have bursts of things where I go you know, outward on. But I think for the most part, you know, I am kind of a laid-back person in a, as a performer compared to most comedians. And uh, so I guess it doesn't bother me. I am a very private person, though, where I need a certain amount of alone time every day. So I do, when I went to Scandinavia, I knew that I fit in there. I went, oh, man, these are all my... Rooters. These are all the, my friends. So, so that was helpful for me to see that where I came from. I just the, the thought of getting up. I mean, this is why radio is so well suited to me. I mean, it's just it's not even a person. It's a device right. that I'm talking to. If I had to speak to to hundreds or thousands of, if I knew there was a camera focused on me, that there were that millions of people were watching me on cable TV, expecting me. Mm. By golly, I better be funny. Well, I think that what happens is you just get in. You just are funny. I mean, you know, you work at something and you make it good and it just works and that's what you do. I don't think you can start thinking about everybody watching you and all that stuff because you'll go cuckoo. You know, you could you know, scare yourself. You just go out and do it and just pretend there's a couple people watching. What do you like best about a life on the road where you're in one city one night and another, another city the next night? And I guess all the really different kinds of people I meet, you know, people come to and do the jobs like you do and the people in the hotels and the people who drive you places and that whole thing that kind of just supports that. And it's interesting to me that uh, so many people have made a career out of informing people of people in the public. So it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, it's very interesting and intriguing. And I get to see the real fabric of this country, the innermost, you know, I guess, feelings and what's going on. And, you know, people just reflect of how they live and it's interesting to me i learn a lot i learn a lot about my comedy and i learn a lot about myself and i learn a lot about this country and why we're motivated the way we are what's the best line you've come up with lately 
um, the the best line. What, what, which, which, what, what did you think of that, that just tickled you? It just you well, I was I like the new thing I'm doing about Barbara Bush having to calm George Bush down once a week. Get in here, you know the whole idea of her really being the person behind that, you know, you know, and and I like that 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 type of situation, you know, and then the idea that I've, you know, the Secret Serviceman who was watching her. When she broke her leg, I mean, you know, just think if he had just gotten that job, putting myself in that position, you know, who was supposed to be watching her? I'm not going to tell him. Someone else tell him. You know, now I'm going to be working with Quail again. <laughs> you know, and those kinds of things. And a real good line that I came up with for me, the one I enjoy is Dan Quail line about don't you feel sorry for him? Because we've all been to that party where we didn't fit in. You know, and he has to go every day. So those kinds of things, you know, those are the kinds of lines I like best because they're so more human. Do you tailor material to what city you're in? Not too much. I talk a little bit about each city, but no, I I try to. I the, my essence of my comedy is about the human condition, the human condition of us. We're all in it. After the short break, Louis Anderson directly addresses his struggles with his weight. The next time I spoke with Louis Anderson was in 1993 about his book, Goodbye Jumbo, Hello Cruel World, a chronicle of his struggles with his weight. So here now, from 1993, once again, Louis Anderson. Now the next time I spoke with Louis Anderson was in 1993 about his book, Goodbye Jumbo, Hello Cruel World, a chronicle of his struggles with his weight. So here now, from 1993... Once again, Louis Anderson. Went to the beach the other day. Every time I'd lay down, people would push me back into the water. <laughs> Hurry up, he's dying. We're not, as a society, real nice to large people, are we? No, and I don't think, as a society, we're real nice. I think you could stop right there. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're kind of a tough society, tough society that demands... Uh, people be a certain way, and every time you get out of that little rut that that the society's in, you get punished. And for me, it was, um, you know, part of the reason I wanted to become successful was to, I guess, in in some ways, let people know that you can't put somebody in a category and keep them there, you know. And, um, you know, that was part of it. And and also, I think that I really did grow and learn and and learn a lot, a lot about self-love. And also, I think I learned a lot about what um, I was hooked into and my relationship with food and the idea that food in, in a dysfunctional family, food plus food oftentimes equals love. And I think that can be very uh, uh, debilitating to people. And, and how to break out of that, you know, isn't a two shakes and a light meal. You know, it isn't that kind of a thing. It isn't a diet pill, and it is, it's a plan. It's a new life plan, and you've got to change that life, and it's difficult. Well, thin people don't mm. understand that it's not just you eat too much. Right. Or, or that, uh, you In know... In fact, when thin people see a fat person, they think, how did they get that way? Yeah. You know, they don't have any idea. And so that they, they kind of think the person's fat and lazy, and, uh, but it takes a lot of energy and a lot of work to gain that weight. You have to plan it out. You've got to plan your day around food. You know, you have to, in order to 
gain a tremendous amount of weight, you've got to have a relationship with food where most people I don't think have a, well, I think most people have a healthy relationship or a healthier Mm -hmm. than I had. And so what I was trying to do is change that relationship and not look at food the same way. But your your experience with food is not unlike maybe another person's experience with uh, an illegal drug, another person's experience with alcohol. Uh, it just it, when you come from a dysfunctional family, as uh, you know, as you've described, you you turn to something else to to relieve things, don't you? Well, I think you know when when you come from an addictive family where there's an addiction or multiple addictions, I think you're likely to pick up one of those addictions. So. I wasn't interested in alcohol as my addiction, although it probably could be very easily, you know, uh, I, or drugs, anything like that that I can be compulsive about. But I think that food is such a legal, you know, medication in the society that I think a lot of us use it. It's not only legal, but you can't go to a party without somebody shoving it at you. Yeah. The difficult thing about food is you can quit drinking, you can quit using drugs, but you can't quit eating. So people have to really realize how difficult it is. And I wanted this book not to be a testimonial of losing weight. I wanted this book to be a honest look at the feelings that you deal with and also um, the loss, you know, of a part of your life because of that and, and, and what you go through. I mean, you know, it's like with Dear Dad. I guess it was a journey I went on, and after I was done with it, I felt better. And after this book, I feel better. So I must be doing the right thing, at least for myself. I can't speak for other people. Did you have hesitation about publishing this book? Yeah, I wanted to burn it. <laughs> I thought it would be a lot better off in, in ashes and then go and write a thriller. <laughs> this is a thriller that happens to be real. Not such a thriller, but, you know, I think I pretty much knew, you know, what you, well, you don't know what's going to happen in this book. Mm-hmm. And I think the ending has an honest and real uh, feel to it because it's really real. You know, I don't. I didn't make up the ending. The ending happened. I was done with the book when I was done with it. The publishers wanted it in 1990, but I was done in 1993 or 1992, really. Um, you know, December of 1992, I think, was the last time I looked at the book. <laughs> you know, in the sense of rewriting it again. Yeah. Because I rewrote this book about ten times. Wow. Changing it because I hated it, and everyone else did at first. Changing it to get it right, or or <clears throat> taking things out, or or what were you doing with it? I was trying to make it uh, a story, because what mm-hmm. good is a book that doesn't have a story? You know, and all it had was a uh, a beginning and middle, or a beginning and end, or a middle and end. It didn't really have a a full thing, and that's where the elephant stuff really helped me. You know what what there, what there is not in this book is whining. I didn't. I didn't read. I hope it. not. I don't want to become off, come off as a victim. No, I really think that. exactly. I mean, there's there's nothing in here. Oh, look at me! How yeah. how pitiful my life is because look what they did to me. Mm. There's none of that. Well, I learned a great deal about forgiveness in my last book, and I, I probably started this book on a forgiveness level, in a lot of senses. You know, knowing that forgiveness was a out. I thought, well, is forgiveness another thing in this book? Is forgiveness our same uh, message? I think the important thing about this book is it tells you that. You can have control over your eating disorder. And I think this book speaks specifically to an individual rather than uh, to, a, to a problem. I think this, this book speaks to that individual inside of all of us that does somewhere find the way to get that control. 
Would this have been a different book if you had written this one first, then Dear Dad? Well, this actually was supposed to be the first book. Oh, really? You know, the idea of writing a book about being fat and comedy and all that stuff. And then in that, I discovered the alcoholism with my father. I started writing letters to him, and that was a journal that became a book. And then... I forgot about doing this book, and then Dear Dad was a success, so, you know, when you have a success, they want you to do another book. And I didn't want to just hand in a second... You know, I remember my second Tonight Show, which was much weaker than my first Tonight Show. And I didn't want my second book to be weaker than my first book. Mm -hmm. And so I learned a great lesson there, and so I really worked hard on this book. And in the process of that, learned how to become a better writer... I think my writing is is improved. You know, I've done much more reading, and uh, I just I really love writing, and I think that's going to be in one of the end results of my life is that I, I think I could write forever. Have you thought of turning to fiction? I mean, you yeah, I'm really, writing a novel right now. You've got a great storytelling ability. Yeah. Well, that's a nice compliment. That's what I hope the the publishers think. I'm writing a uh, a book right now about two brothers who are trying to kill each other basically <laughs> but you know i mean you know in families that happens and and how that come how do you come out of that yeah, i was gonna you say well, it's not like you had any personal experience in the matters <laughs> of not being able to get along with a brother uh, well i think i you know i see so much pain in people that i try to write about those kinds of things because i think there's plenty of stuff about the other stuff but what i try to do in this book and maybe it's too ambitious but what i really try to do is explain where comedy came from by using a very specific incident, and that is being fat, and threading that through the story, and, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, I'm leaving you know I, I'm leaving the reader with an idea about something a little more about the human being. That's funny, mm -hmm. or at least this human being. <laughs> I tried to be honest in the book. That was my big, that was my main thing. I threw out stuff that I didn't think was it was honest there was uh when, when when you describe in here if i'm not giving too much away uh the moment at which you learned of your mother's death right uh and then it dawned on you sometime after that as it dawned on me when when we lost my dad all the things that you wanted to ask all the things that you wanted to say it's too late now well you know what i always say at the end of all of my shows now which is really funny is i don't i don't feel a particularly uh, I don't feel like it's particularly important to say anything in my act except this one thing at the end of the show I say uh, while I'm talking about my dad. I say, if you have anything to work out with your family, brothers, sisters, moms, or dads, to do it, to do it right away because it's the most important thing. And once you don't have the opportunity, you never will. And I used to think, do you think I should do that? You know, does it make a difference, you know? And then I was in Laughlin, Nevada a few weeks ago, and I was going to my room, and, and after the show, the audience kind of, we kind of crossed paths briefly, you know, to the elevator where I go. And a guy came over to me, a guy in his 60s, and says, I'm on my way upstairs to call my dad. I haven't talked to him in a while. So I knew right then that every time that I had done it, maybe I had done it always, all those times for that specific time, but but I don't know how many. Um, so if when you get, I've been really lucky to get immediate feedback on, on those kinds of things. I guess that the thing that really m matters to me is um, if something I do relieves the pain that somebody's feeling, that would be a really great thing to do with your life. So... I keep focusing on those things, even though 
they aren't the most productive things in in one sense. But that's really what matters to me. Is um, you know because when I was growing up, if there were a book like this or a book like Dear Dad, I'd have had a lot easier time with my life at a younger age. So I try to I try to be responsible as a person who's gained a great deal from his success without being too egotistical. Louis Anderson died from complications of cancer in January 2022. And you can find easy Amazon links to the books that we've talked about today by Louis Anderson at our website, heardeverything.com. And that's where you'll also find my interview with another comedian, a contemporary of Louis Anderson's who left us too soon, Gilbert Gottfried. When I do The Tonight Show, it's like people's favorite part (laughs) is not the bit so much, but when you you screw up totally. And my 1988 talk with another contemporary of Louis Anderson's, Russian immigrant Yakov Smirnov. Somebody called me and said, come on over, we'll chew the fat. I said, yeah, that sounds like necking with Russian woman or something. (laughs) Oh, man. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, the iconic chef, TV host, and cookbook author... The barefoot Contessa herself, Ina Garten. I think it's just about taking really good ingredients and enhancing them. That's really what cooking is for me. It's not so much about the art of layering flavors and, and trying new things. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.